Thank you for joining me for the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's January 2022. This episode presents my first returning guest, my old friend Jason Bloom, one of the top jury consultants in the country. Despite the many challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic for the jury selection process, Jason has kept busy with trials and mock jury exercises throughout 2020 and 2021. About a year ago, I spoke with Jason about patterns he had been seeing in the thoughts and attitudes of today's jurors, and in this episode, we revisit his recent experiences. He reports that prospective jurors are eager to be picked and serve on the jury, notably more so than before the pandemic, and they bring with them a great deal of concern about the issue of accountability, whether the parties to the case they're hearing have acted in a responsible way and accepted responsibility for their actions and decisions. Our conversation offers some quality insight not only into the makeup of today's civil juries, but the overall perspectives of all American voters here in 2022 as the pandemic slowly recedes into the history books. Jason, it's good to have you back. It's been almost a year since we last spoke about the juries and jury selection. Where are we at number-wise? We were just sort of starting to come back online in a serious way when we last spoke. Are we online fully? Are we still finding our way? Yeah, well, first of all, David, it's really nice to be here once again. You do excellent work, and I'm, I'm certainly uh, appreciative of what you do and thankful for the opportunity to uh, contribute here. The trends are different all over the country, quite frankly. I mean, a place like Dallas, where you and I reside, it's still pretty slow to get back to a sense of normalcy in terms of the amount of jury trials, certainly on the civil side. But in other parts of the country, it's it's wide open. Other parts of the company, country now, it's less because of Omicron, but I think things are going to be heading back towards normal as we progress through the early part of 2022, which is fantastic. Business-wise, we've been as busy as ever, but interestingly enough, it's just not as much in Dallas. Uh, Other parts of the country are are a little bit hotter in terms of mock jury studies, as well as having jury trials, and and Dallas, I, I hope, is slowly getting back to where it was before the pandemic. In the areas around the country where things are picking up a little faster than in some others, is that just a product of them having perhaps been less affected by the virus than other areas, or does it have to do with something more structural about how they have their selection process set up? It's really hard to tell. It seems to me that it's more judge by judge. And judges that really want to get back to hosting trials are finding ways to host trials and making it safe. What's an interesting trend though, last year we went to 23 jury picks. We were 19 and four, by the way, in terms of the win-loss record. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I attribute a lot of that to just working with great lawyers, which makes my job, quite frankly, rather easy. I would rather capitalize on people's strengths than try to rehabilitate their weakness. But the trend I'm really seeing, at least at the jury level, is there is much more inertia and energy towards serving. In other words, I used to measure, just for my own edification, how many people in the jury pool would try to get dismissed for a hardship. Raising their hand during the jury selection process and and saying something like, you know, I've got a job, if I'm not there... I'm not going to make any money, or I've got some vacation plans, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and many judges are rather lenient, which is, which is okay. And I used to clock it at about 25 to 30% of the jury pool would at least attempt to be dismissed for some sort of hardship. Now it's being clocked more like at about 10%. And I think that what jury service is doing and will continue to do will be an outlet 
for the common person, for the public, to try to change what's going on in society. There's a lot of frustration in society. People are frustrated, people are nervous, people are anxious about what's going on around them. And if you stop and think about it, there's not a whole lot of things that the average person can do. Certainly you can vote, which comes around every November, or you can serve on a jury in an attempt to effectuate change in your community, change in the way that businesses are run, change in human behavior. And I think we're going to see that trend. That is people more willing to serve on juries, especially if they're only for a week or two, than we used to see in the past. And I think that's fantastic. It's certainly great to see people showing up and following through and not pursuing excuses that are a little bit half-baked to try to get out. I'm curious, when you see more people that want to serve, that want to express themselves and their points of view about our society and our laws, are there particular viewpoints that are tending to surface in that type of person? Yeah, there's really two big things I'm seeing. One is accountability. We've gone through a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. But a lot of other things have happened over the last two years besides something on the medical side. Certainly, we had we had a huge election. We had, in 2020, we had the aftermath of the election. We had what happened on January 6th. We've got a lot of stuff going on in the news where there's no accountability. And people get frustrated by the lack of accountability. And so we used to see when verdicts would come out and there'd be large damages awards or even small damages awards, they were anchored on two basic emotions. One was sympathy, sympathy towards the plaintiff. And then the other was enragement or anger or even resentment towards the defendant. Now there's a third trigger for high damages, and I'm I'm finding this more in the mock jury studies, and that is accountability. And so what you're hearing when you watch mock jurors deliberate, what you're hearing when you ask mock jurors about their positions and how they arrived at their decisions is words that are coming out of their mouths have to do with accountability. The defendant needs to be held accountable. The plaintiff is unwilling to take accountability for his or her actions. There is a lack of accountability in society. And that word accountability is just popping up much more in modern times than it did historically. So that's really a trend that I'm seeing. The other trend is we've got this Occupy Wall Street thing still going on, which of course there's no Wall Street involved here, but it's the 1% against the 99% or the 99% against the 1%. And if you think about it, a lot of litigants, people who are involved in lawsuits, corporations that are involved in lawsuits, corporations that are making the news are usually part of, or at least perceived to be, the 1%. Most of the jurors, the people who are making the decisions about what's right and what's wrong in our society are part of the 99%. And I think that tendency, that dynamic has been unearthed. It's always been there, but I think it's been unearthed by what has been going on in society over the last two years. We used to call this wealth bias. Now we call it the 1% versus the 99% dynamic. Everyone's got a strong feeling about vaccinations and masks and all these practical issues about the pandemic that we've had to confront, like it or not, for the last couple of years. Is that sort of topic a helpful way of getting people talking and surfacing some of these biases and insights? Or is it something that people are just talked out about and they look at you with a dead expression if you mention masks or vaccines and questioning? (laughs) Yeah, it's more, there's more of this pandemic fatigue that still exists. I think what's happened over the last couple months in December of 2021 and January of 2020, 
2022 has, has only fueled this fatigue. It just seems people don't really want to talk about masks. They don't want to talk about vaccines. I certainly don't see it when I'm listening in on mock jury deliberations or I'm running focus groups. It's just something that people don't want to talk about as much as they want to talk about uncertainty as much as they want to talk about the fact that the government has failed them, the fact that they want to talk about a lack of accountability. What's really interesting, too, is that I've seen trending that verdicts are more oppositional in nature now. And this is also fairly consistent with what we saw in the last couple of presidential elections. In other words, jury verdicts are becoming more and more against a party rather than for a party. In other words, against a defendant rather than for a plaintiff. And it seems like which side they dislike the least tends to win, as opposed to who they like the best, as opposed to finding a hero versus a villain. And so that's been very, very interesting to me too, as they talk about, and the energy and the focus is on the party that should lose rather than trying to help the party that they want to win. Are there particular kinds of evidence or ways of explaining yourself that you've seen to be particularly good about fitting a case's facts into the jurors' concerns about certainty and accountability that they bring with them into the court? Well, what's interesting now is we've got the rise of the ultra-crepidarian, which is my new favorite word. I like this word. It's been my word. It's a pandemic word for me, and it's basically people think they know what they're talking about when they really don't. That everyone listening to this podcast has a friend or even a client that is an ultra-crepidarian. I would also hypothesize that once I just said that, one of your listeners either spit out their coffee or their Diet Coke with laughter. And that's on the rise. So there's less reliance on experts. We have been looking at our phones, our devices, we, we, for information. We've been living in an echo chamber. In other words, the information we are receiving is coming from a source that we have chosen to receive it from. So we think we know what we're talking about. What's also very interesting now that we have observed that we are getting our information from our devices using our thumbs or other ways to scroll is the average person will look at a post, a meme, a piece of information on social media for about three seconds. That's the deep dive that people are taking before they need to move on to the next thing. I used to call this headline justice. We also talk about bumper stickers, in other words, bumper sticker justice, in other words, the rationale for any jury verdict can fit uh, on a bumper sticker. Now it can fit in a meme because memes are becoming instructional. It also tells you there's not a lot of patience for people orbiting around explanations, making things complex when they need to be simple. So I can't stress enough in terms of the need to simplify things for jurors. Everyone's been preaching that before. Anyone can tell you that if you want to do a good job in front of a juror, you need to simplify things, but you need to know how far you need to go to simplify it, and that is, you gotta be able to say it within about three seconds. If it's a, on a PowerPoint slide, someone's got to be able to absorb that information within about three seconds because they're just not gonna give that much more focus to it. We become extremely cognitively lazy as a society, and I think that is part of jury decision-making as well. But the ultra-crepidarian is on the rise. People think they know what they're talking about. It's very, very easy for them to learn a little bit about their case or your case and then say, you know what? 
I've seen this movie before. I don't need to hear anything more about it. I know how it ends. And you've got to explore people like that. And you've also got to deputize these jurors to keep an open mind. And you can ask them to do it, but that doesn't mean that they will. I think you've got to incentivize them to do it. And I think our judicial officers and judges can help in that aspect as well. It's just too hard now to take information for hours or days or even weeks and try to weigh it all at the end. It's much, much easier to say, okay, I know who's right, I know who's wrong, and I'm just going to shut down and pretend that I'm paying attention throughout the remainder of the trial. You know, when you said that the listeners know someone or have a co-worker that is an ultra-crepidarian, I think it'd be fair to say it's if you can't think of someone, it's probably you. Um, <laughs> just saying, just a thought occurs to me as you say that. You mentioned lawyers and, and judges uh, incentivizing jurors to open their minds up and consider the evidence fully and fairly. What are some practical ways of doing that? How does incentivizing work as a matter of yeah. you know, getting a particular panel in and moving the right direction on a case? Well, well, we know that everyone that shows up for jury duty wants to be a good juror. We start with that. But we also have to realize they don't really know how to do that. I mean, they are just lifted from their normal day-to-day activities and put inside of a courtroom. All of a sudden, stripped of some of their civil liberties. And by that, I mean they're told, you got to show up at 9 o'clock. We're going to be here till 5 o'clock. You're going to take lunch break at this point in time. Don't do any online research, although that's how we normally exist now. Don't talk to other people about it. And oh, by the way, listen to all this information and you can't ask any questions. So that's really not how we go about making decisions in our lives. We can usually interact. We can usually ask questions. We can usually use external sources to find additional information. That's why I found that the best lawyers out there still, it was like it before the pandemic and it's like it after it, are the ones who are answering the questions that the decision maker, the voter, the juror actually is asking in his or her mind. We use mock jury studies to predict that, but that's really the art of advocacy. That's really the art of persuasion. So in that regard, to make these jurors or allow them to become more of a participant in the process rather than a potted plant, we incentivize them to be a good juror by telling them to do so. You've got to listen to all of the testimony to try to refrain from making your decision until you've heard everything. And I know that there are platitudes out there that judges and attorneys say in that regard, but I'm not sure it quite lands with them. The other thing that we can do that judges around the country have been experimenting with, and I can't think of a particular venue that has experimented with this and then said it's a bad idea, I want to remove this from the process, is allowing the jurors to ask questions in the form of written questions, in the form of allowing them to pass questions on to the judge after each witness and then have those questions get filtered by the judge, by the attorneys on both sides, and then allow those questions to be asked by the judge to the witness. And I think that just allows them to participate and I think that's going to increase the focus as well as the attention span. We recently had a, a, a antitrust trial in East Texas fall of last year where the judge allowed that. And he used the process you described, where the jurors wrote down their questions and during the course of the day they would pass them to the bailiff who would give them to the judge, remove ones that were clearly objectionable, go over the remaining ones with counsel, and then ask them. And I thought that had two benefits. 
The most obvious one is that the juror got an answer to their question, and so that was nice to see that. But the other benefit is it's not a vacuum. Juror expresses themselves directly in a question, and every lawyer in that room is thinking, how, if one person asked it, probably everybody else has the same question. How can we adapt our presentation to take yeah. into account what seems to be behind this question? And I thought it produced very helpful feedback effects uh, on both sides of the trial presentation during the course of that. Do you see stuff like that in the trials you've been involved with? Absolutely, and I was involved in the one that you were talking about as well, but that is something that's been very hot in the Eastern District of Texas and, and in other venues around the country. And I just can't think of any downside to it, as long as they're being filtered, because you could get some real crazy or outlandish questions. But again, we're trying to equip these voters, these decision makers, with the information that they need to do a good job. And, and sometimes we are falsely predicting what that information is. I, I always tell people there's a gap the size of the ocean between what lawyers and witnesses want to tell these voters, these jurors, and, and what these people actually want to know. And if you stop and think about it, a juror is nothing more than a blank slate voter. And so all this does is equip them, like I said before, with what they need, what they want to hear and know in order for them to render justice. And again, bottom line, do a good job. Looking into your crystal ball at the typical juror that comes to the courthouse that brings the ways of approaching information and the outlook that we've been talking about and trying to look ahead two, three, four years do you see the basic makeup of the likely juror remaining largely the same as it is today, or do you feel like it may evolve in some ways? Yeah, I think the, the, the makeup of the jury pool evolves with the makeup of the community. So there are places around the country which, which are very homogenous as a society. I mean, it's always going to be that way. The people that have lived there have lived there for a long, long time. Then you look at another uh, venue like a Washington, D.C., a New York, or a San Francisco, which is going to see a different looking population in the next few years than it, than it currently does. But I think the way that jurors go about making decisions is going to be the same and it's going to be the same for a long time. It's just what are we doing to allow them to make that decision? How are we allowing them to do a good job? And I think we need to look at, at things and maybe make some adjustments just to give them a little bit more power in the courtroom. There's the litigator's fallacy out there, and, and that is if I'm a trial lawyer and I just say something in the courtroom, then all of the jurors are going to uh, agree with it. They're going to believe it. They're going to understand it. They're going to see the world the same way that the trial lawyer does. And that's just not true at all. That's why it's just a fallacy. You know, jurors only hear what they understand, which is very, very different than saying they understand what they hear. And we've just got to give a little bit more time and thought to how these jurors process information, what their needs and expectations are, and how, as trial lawyers, fact witnesses, and experts, we can comport with those needs and expectations. Because again, that's the art of advocacy. That's the art of persuasion. That's the art of connecting with these people. And that is talking to them about what's germane to them and their decision-making, realizing it may not be the same thing that's germane to the person who is encoding the information, communicating the information, and again, allowing these jurors to ask questions 
I think facilitates that. And I just can't think of any downside except it's a little bit laborious or taxing on the part of the uh, the court and its staff. A couple of practical questions. During the height of the pandemic, when there just weren't really proceedings going on at courthouses, there was experimentation with all sorts of Zoom proceedings. And coming now as we're a little more back into normalcy again, I think a legacy of that is we are doing, continuing to do a lot of routine business and even some bench trial type proceedings using Zoom or other remote technology. Trying to conduct jury examinations or jury trials by Zoom or virtually was Mm -hmm. tried had some uh, results, but largely seems to have fizzled out. Has that been your experience around the country? I don't think a Zoom jury trial is a replacement for an in-person jury trial. And I've been part of a couple of those, and I've been part of a few online mock jury studies. So we did about 56 mock jury studies in 2021, and just a handful of them were online. And the bottom line with that is it's it doesn't work for every type of case. If it's complex, it doesn't work. If it's simple, it might work. Car accidents come to mind as good for the Zoom jury trials, the Zoom online jury trials as well. But what I notice in moderating these things and running these things is the attention span just drops like a bowling ball. In other words, if you don't really need the voter or the juror to pay attention to the presentations or these presentations are going to be lengthy, don't do it online. Obviously, I cannot argue with the convenience factor. It's obviously gonna be more convenient to do these things online, but that doesn't necessarily make it a true replacement. Now, a hearing, a motion to compel, some of these other things that are done in front of judges that take 15 minutes or maybe an hour, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a great use of resources as well as technology, but what I've learned and what I've seen from it is just people aren't paying attention when they're on Zoom. You know, the biggest distraction for all of us in society are these electronic devices, and jurors inside of courtrooms are not allowed to use their electronic devices. When we have a Zoom jury trial, we are actually putting the juror in front of and asking him or her to focus on the electronic device that creates the distraction. And there's other distractions going on in the room, things that they're thinking about. I I mean, I've seen, it's clear that some of these people are doing work at the same time, that they are supposed to be paying attention to the trough. So for the same reason that judges and litigants do not want jurors inside courtrooms playing around on their laptops, their iPads, or their phones, should be the same reason that we don't want them to participate as jurors through an online mechanism. Another practical question. I recently was called jury duty here in Dallas County at Frank Crowley, the criminal courthouse. A big room that has enough space to socially distance a felony jury panel, it's just hard to be heard. Have you encountered logistical issues like that in Bredire examinations? And have you seen any best practices to try to combat the the unescapable fact that moving people further apart makes it harder to hear them. Yeah, most of my experience in the courtrooms now have been in situations where jurors are in the gallery, the judges are using smaller panels instead of a 60-person panel, they're using a 30-person panel, they're spreading them out in the gallery. I really haven't heard too much about issues with hearing. Uh, Some of these courts now are using microphones, wireless microphones, speaker systems so that prospective jurors can hear. 
There was one incident that I remember, and, and it was a Zoom, half Zoom trial, half real trial that took place in August of 2020 that I heard just got reversed and remanded or something like that on appeal. We were doing the jury selection in a high school auditorium. It was very dark and gloomy. It looked like the Batcave. And one of uh, our lawyers could not participate due to health reasons. So he was by Zoom. And so there was a small TV at the front of the auditorium that he was broadcast on. And then everyone else was inside the high school auditorium. And he was trying to do the voir dire and it was very hard for him. And the reason I say that is because a large part of voir dire is the ability to build rapport or connect with your potential voter, your potential juror. And where you are on a tiny screen, as opposed to physically present or walking around in the room, it's really, really hard to bond with that person. Uh, but I think, again, you know, the, the most scared person in the room in these jury trials and jury selections is not necessarily the jurors. I mean, I just haven't found that they are very scared of, of getting COVID. We've got masks on, they're socially distant, we lather them up with sanitizer, and it seems like there might be a little bit more panic going on at the administration level than it is at actually uh, the jury level. So despite everyone's innovation and best efforts and hard work to keep the process moving and to keep trials happening over the last year and a half, two years, we're just behind. There are backlogs in every jurisdiction across the country. One way or another, we've got to get the backlog cleared out and get these cases moving along. You see juries move through the selection process all the time. Any ideas on how we can go about getting ourselves out of this backlog? I think we've just got to recognize that people want to serve on jurors. So if we're all sitting there thinking, hey, no one wants to go down to the courthouse, no one wants to be a juror, that's just not what I'm seeing. Both in jury trials, the jury selections I've been part of, as well as the mock jury studies I've been conducting were our show rates. That is the amount of people showing up and the quality of people showing up is as good as it has ever been. My hypothesis is as things get reset, and said again, and the litigants see a little bit more certainty in the trial dates, more things will get resolved. But what's been happening is things are just getting punted, or the can is getting kicked down the road, and there's no real incentive to resolve things. But once you've got a trial date, it's kind of like the end. It's kind of like, okay, we're at the finish line. Now we've got to go to trial or we've got to resolve the case. So I think some of the backlog will be reduced by a hard and set trial date as that will incentivize people to resolve their disputes. The other thing I can think of is maybe we just put these trials on time limits. So instead of a three-week trial, we make it a two-week trial. Instead of a two-week trial, we make it a six-day trial. That way we can squeeze more trials into any given month or any given year. But again, it's fascinating to me to see that people in communities all over the country want to participate in their society and they want to do that by participating in jury service. So jurors wanna be there, they wanna do it. Let's give them the opportunity. Going forward for we as lawyers, what are some things that we ought to be particularly aware of, maybe with a different priority for as we plan our cases for trial and think about who the best jurors are for those trials than we might have been doing before this pandemic experience? I think the, the number one frustration I am, I'm seeing in mock jury studies as well as post 
post-trial interviews is the evasiveness of witnesses. I just don't think that people have the patience anymore to listen to long explanations when they want to just know the answer to the questions. The pandemic has exacerbated or worsened this tendency because when the pandemic hit, we all looked for answers. We looked to the government, we looked to our leaders for the answers, and we didn't get any. And it was really, really frustrating. And I think that people are more easily triggered or this frustration is more easily triggered by evasiveness in the courtroom. So the lesson is get to the point. The lesson is teach your witnesses to get to the point before the decision maker, the voter, the decoder of the information says, what the heck is the point of this? Give them the answers as directly as possible. Know that less is always more because we've been searching for information about our health. Vaccines, do they work? Do they not work? Well, sort of, maybe they could, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I think as a society, we've grown tired of that sort of rhetoric. So to the extent that lawyers and witnesses can be more direct and more forthcoming, I think that jurors and decision makers in courtrooms can only applaud that. In fact, I think it might even be refreshing to them to see witnesses and lawyers that are very direct and to the point when conventionally, We've always thought that the more that we say, the more that we're believable. And I think now it's the less that we say and the more direct we are, the more believable we're going to be by jurors. Well, I'm going to take the advice you've given me, Jason, to be short and to the point and wrap up our interview. I thank you very much for coming and sharing all this work and experience that you get out there in the field with these jurors with us. There are great lessons here for law practice and for society at large, and I really appreciate you preparing so thoroughly and laying it all out for us. Ah, thank you, David. Today on Coal Mind, I was excited and proud to offer my first returning visitor, the well-known jury consultant, Jason Bloom. We talked about how jurors in court cases today are excited to serve, and when they do serve on a jury, bring with them very specific concerns to the courthouse about issues such as accountability and responsibility. Those insights are, of course, helpful to trial lawyers, but they also apply more broadly to customers, voters, really anyone whose opinions are sought after and considered as part of decision-making by businesses and governments. In upcoming episodes of Coal Mind, in addition to episodes focusing on specific court cases and legal issues, I look forward to bringing you more interviews with knowledgeable observers like Jason. If you like this episode, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Also, the Coal Mine Podcast is now available on Amazon Music if you'd like to use that particular service. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. Mm-hmm.